And we are live. Welcome back to another episode of The Steady Compass. I'm your host, Quez, and today I'm joined by a wonderful guest. His name is Sartak Ayapa, a.k.a. Zataxter. You know him from his work as an esports commentator, content creator, and business developer. He's actively building Web34 Company and Barracuda34, and is easily one of the brightest individuals in gaming and esports. We've got a great episode today. Zata, welcome to the show. Pumped to be here, man. I'm, I'm glad we get, get to do this. I'm glad you had me on, considering I, I don't think I've got such a huge track record of experience. I think I'm still a novice, even though it's a couple of years commentating. Still, yeah. I'm just scared for beer. I think it's, all, it's always a matter of recognizing where we are in our journey. Like uh-huh. to, I, I find it interesting that you say you feel like you're a novice, especially several years into your journey. I think there's maybe an element of humility there. The reason I say that is because when I've listened to some of your content, you're someone who's confident, particularly in F1. I, I think that's where I've seen bulk, most of your, like, hist- your history, your historical content. Yeah. Is, is what I've seen. I think since then you've been expanding significantly more. I'm very yeah. open to talking about that. But yeah, man, thank you for being here. I'm super excited. I you were one of the first people that popped up in my head. I was like, okay, I gotta get Zata on the show. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm always like appreciative of that because a lot of people haven't heard about esports at least in the circles I've been in. Like before, I got my game of friends right. Or I, I usually had a group of friends who probably are software developers or in the marketing side of things and compared to Gary's tro- probably not big in the, in these particular circles and from where I'm from back in the day, I'm mean, say back in the day, a couple of years ago, before COVID, right? And yeah, that time when they heard esports, they like correlated to me first before anybody else. So that felt good. Despite being at the time a real, real novice and knowing nothing about it. So yeah. What was it that spurred you to get into broadcasting or shoutcasting of all things? Yeah, so interesting story, and I'll take it a bit behind gaming itself. In February of 2020, I really wanted to, like, the foundations of, let's say, a college sports structure here in, like, locally at the very least, because I, I come from that background. I've been a college sports player. I used to play field hockey, and... With an intent to pursue that, I needed like, I knew that an attempt to raise any kind of funding for it, because when you're trying to build something like a college sports structure, you're going to need, it essentially starts off as broadcasting. Over in the US, I assume that's the NCAA, which I've heard so much about. And of course, they're live streamed. All the players are kept at some sort of a mantle for their skill. And much more recently, from what I've heard, they're allowed to pursue brand deals and whatnot, right? That's so, the name, but, image, and likeness deals that exactly. are happening now. Yep. Yeah. So you hear about all this and even just the the number of people that show up to their colleges, both alumni and the parents of the players, was very admirable for someone who's like playing college sports here in India. So with an intent for that, I actually just took a tripod on my mobile phone and went on to a local sports event and actually recorded quite a bit of content. This was a month before the COVID hit or restrictions hit here in India, college sports as it is, very less covered overall, less, even the tournaments are hosted comparatively less, despite my city being an interesting one, Bangalore. So yeah, anyway, COVID hit and of course, sports goes out the window instantly, yeah. nowhere in sights, but just to fast track the story itself. From there, I moved on to gaming because as it is, competitiveness, competition is something I somehow craved at the time. 
I was also working a day job at the time. I was shifting from going from college to work. And then with the April and May months of 2020 is when I got into gaming. And with that, since I was also doing my day job, I finally got a laptop, a gaming laptop, which I didn't have access to before. So yeah, that, that hit right in the wheels because now I like finally have freedom, right? I, restrictions are, were a pretty big thing in childhood for me. And that was not the case anymore. I'd usually go to a friend's house to game for the most part. Even the say the PC we had was not top of the line or anything. Intel graphic card only. So you know how it is. But yeah, to fast forward from there, I had a friend of mine, an old friend of mine, who had just wrapped up his college just like me, competing with a bunch of his friends in a sim racing league. So they started their own sim racing league. And this is going back to the F1 side of things, which you've seen me do. So as part of that sim racing league, the next level was to get it live streamed and they wanted me to do it because I'd already been live streaming some of the games, hosting Call of Duty Mobile, uh, 1v1s and just tournaments, mini tournaments, scrims even as part of building what Barracuda 34 used to be back in the day. And yeah, so with that, I uh, maybe at that time with gaming becoming a buzz as well, Esports seemed like a right thing to get into and I wanted to become a tournament organizer, but at a smaller scale. And yeah, with that, just going straight to the point, Sim Racing League, live streaming, I'm like, okay, I'm all set. Got the YouTube set up. Everything is set. Call it Roadrunner Racing Esports as the entity. And the league was called Poor Racing League. And it's still running till date. And yeah, at that point in time, before I had to hit live half an hour before, I realized, oh, Commentary is a pretty big part of Formula One and I don't have a commentator. And then, yeah, all of a sudden it's like a fish out of water situation. I got to do this because I know it'll be good for whatever I want to do next. New communities I'll be able to get access to, a bunch of new people I'll um, be able to reach out to and yeah, it gets me credited with everything I'm doing. And yeah, I just jumped in, just turned on the mic, whatever I had and just jumped in as a commentator. And it started from there and... Yeah, after that, it just kept on going. So some, in some sense, a self-taught commentator, which I think most esports commentators are. Yeah, I, I would make the argument that most people have a inkling for it or they've heard uh -huh. a great commentator in some sport. And, yeah. and suddenly you think about that yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to you. And, and getting the crowd amped up. I, I've actually had, you said so many little gems, but I'm going to start with this. Uh, I'm a firm believer that a great commentator can make for a great league. And what I mean by that is some of the most historical moments, both in traditional sports and in esports, I think are not just solidified by the action that's happening in the game, but also by the reaction that's being had by those individuals who's, do, who's doing the broadcast or who's doing commentation, uh, being a commentator. So I, I think what you have is a very specific skill. And what I like is that you ended up diving into it you didn't necessarily wait for someone to give you permission you start you were interested you yep. saw a lot of the dominoes falling into place and you decided to jump in whether you could swim or not you jumped into the water so that's yeah. an admirable thing man and kudos to you for doing it I, I actually to your point this is another thing i wanted to, to point out was you had said that you started gaining some traction there that's actually i think around the time that i first came across you we were both compatriots in the space of Web3 and, and what was going on there. And I, I think you and I are definitely still participants to this day. 
But largely, I think the thing that really won my attention was like, oh, is Zata's like doing shit. Like he's mm-hmm. actually, he's making content. He's running a league and it's all official. It's all, which I mean, what, what I say official is like, you're doing it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you're, you, there's no permission that's being needed from anyone. You are doing the thing that you want to do. That makes it official in my eyes. Yeah. So it, it's documented. It's out there if you want to go and find it and you know, we're not waiting for a big tournament organizer to come and put, put money on the table in any sense and just wait for some kind of approval. For sure, that was like a big part of it. And to this day, just kudos to that league as a whole, the BRL or the Body Racing League. They, the fact that at that point in time, I got that call from an old friend and to just get started, where that took me thereafter. A couple months after it, I was commentating FIFA all of a sudden, a game I barely played. But I understood because, again, it's a sports video game. And I had that sports background. And that I was doing for a college here in uh, my city who were hosting an esports tournament for themselves. So all of a sudden, and I, and I got paid for it. Yeah, but more than that, it was just getting behind the mic and the camera for an entire college session. Here. Yeah, for a session. With a friend, of course, who's a core commentator. And that, that whole experience was new to me. And that happened within 60 days. Right? Not too far. But... And yeah, from there, of course, I expanded into different games before coming to Web3 Gaming as well. But yeah, Valorant, I think Valorant was a proponent of it. I think to, to your point of how individuals behind the mic can give stories for a league to grow in itself. I think the game matters just as much as you'd imagine, since it is what folks are coming by to watch. Valorant was a huge proponent of everything I'm doing. I totally have fun playing Valorant and uh, casting it. I've cast a ton of it as well. So, yeah. I have no good skills in Valorant. I played Valorant for a little bit. I wanted to get good at it. But mm-hmm. my whole life, I've been a, I've been a controller player. Oh, my whole okay. life. So, to jump on mouse and keyboard and try to use mm-hmm. that. It was not easy, but I do have a highlight. I do have a great highlight where I was, I think I was like 21 kills, nine deaths. It was like my best game ever. Literally took a picture and I was like, that's it. I'm retiring. It's over. <laughs> I want to get back to the org- the organization of tournaments, particularly in universities. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the stat is worldwide, but I'll share the stat with you as of 2021 here in yeah. the United States. There were over 178 universities here in the U.S., that had a collegiate program, you mentioned NCAA, a collegiate program where students could go to school and get a scholarship for being an esports competitor. And I found that, this was two years ago, I found that to be one of the more interesting statistics because while the state of esports, the monetization around it, the, I should say the lack of monetization, I guess just the fear that's currently around a lot of universities saw something in it, which makes mm-hmm. me think that maybe we're not taking a look at the whole picture of what esports can be, because it seems very successful in schools, and it's a big, literally, it's been a big investment for a lot of universities, much of which have garnered attention nationally, maybe even worldwide. I want to get to my my next question here, which is, and and this is like a segue into this next thing. I, I, I wanted to get some more information from you on how you were brought in to uh, using FIFA as an example. What was that process like in that 60 day time frame where you were doing your thing and then suddenly you're being paid to do this other tournament 
commentate on it with, with another co-commentator, your casting. What was that process like for you? And then, and then I'll follow up with some questions there. All right. So yeah, a lot of new ground. First of all, just being able to be confident enough to think that we can execute on this. Because one, I hadn't played FIFA too much. I understood football 100%. Watched it from time to time. Not a regular fan. And just leading up to the event itself, how that came about was me essentially in a brand account, reaching out to people via Instagram DMs, trying to tell them, hey, I see that you have a tournament coming out. I saw the poster. Are you looking for commentators? Are you live streaming it? And of course, giving them a reason to do it because a lot of people weren't even acquainted with the concept of being able to live stream. Because instantly when you think about production, no one's thinking about OBS Studio as much. I know it's a pretty big thing within our gamer communities and the streamer communities, but traditionally, they're probably not too aware about OBS and being able to live stream it. They, the second you think about production, they're thinking high costs, right? um, pretty high costs. So yeah, here they were okay with live streaming. They already had the uh, production side of it covered, but of course they hadn't thought about casting. Usually just run the games and uh, make it work like that. So yeah, convince them. Of course, there's a level of convincing and then the rates as well, which is another big part of being confident enough to not really keep, let's say, undermining yourself. That's another part of it, which I struggle with. But despite that, that those 60 days was all about just convincing them that getting the importance of getting people behind the mic for the, as you mentioned, be getting people to weave the stories as the gameplay continues on the screens was a pretty big part of it. So a lot of back and forth like that. So there was an element of, of having to persuade these individuals. Oh, 100%. And in, what would you say was the value that's being brought? Because I, I like your word choice about telling the story while the game is happening. I'm a huge proponent of this, the mastery, the skill of storytelling. What do you, why do you think it's so critical in a game to be commentating? Like in your own perspective, I, I know I already shared with you why I like it, but I'm curious from you, from your point, what do you, what, what do you think is valuable about it? I think there's an element of just pure honest, right? A player comes onto your screens or let's say in the case of esports, you see a gamer tag come on, onto your screens first. There's a level of storytelling there, a level of historical relevance, and this is why I'm what I'm talking about is at a higher level, someone who's like a veteran esports player, been a couple of years, some, someone like Simple would be a huge part of it. But at a relatively grassroots level, I'd argue just highlighting specific moments and nuances of a game. Take, for example, Valorant uh, in a 5v5 FPS when a lot of chaos is happening, right? Because agent abilities. And as that happens, there are parts of it that can steer the viewer away from what's really happening. Three people hitting one side, another, the other two is slowly locking up to the other and how they're doing it and how one of the uh, flankers have positioned themselves perfectly to pick off the entire team, which nobody would have even realized happening early on into that particular round. But yeah, maybe it's a bit of a crude way to say what I'm saying, but I think that there's magic to it and just getting the hype going when it happens on your screens, a pretty big part of it. And in some case, putting into words what each one of those players are really thinking, how they're communicating and executing on what they're doing is how I'd put it. That, that's a pretty big part of it. As, for example, 
I'm stop me if I'm badgering on, but I think of the situation, right? Like a hot, like in in any game, in a, any video game, anyone tries to execute something aggressively, while that aggressive execution of a round in a video game of your choice, I'm going to say Valorant once again, wraps up in 20, 25 seconds. How are you going to really interpret how that went through without commentary? Visualize it. There's going to be like a whole lot of chaos and by the time you interpret anything, it's done. And you're just, like, yeah. you just get the, yeah, the exactly. pop-up, like something. round win, something. Yeah. There's, there's no context to what's happening in each moment. I think that's why it's critical. As you said, weaving stories is absolutely beautiful. I've, I listen to a lot of sports commentary. That's mainly why I say it a lot of times. Every time I get behind a mic for an event, my blood starts flowing. And that's why I like doing what I, what I do. Yeah, I can sense it. I can ha Having consumed a good... I wouldn't say I've consumed all of your content, but having consumed a, a good chunk of it, I can sense it in your voice that you're very excited about what you do. Yeah. And what I will tell you is I've heard stories about how families who their kids are competitors, like they're per performing professionally, they're out on the stage, and they'll bring their families to one of the IRL events. It's an LAN event, a Call of Duty, whatever. And the parents don't know what's happening. Like they, they see their son or their daughter playing but they don't know what's happening. And I find that when commentators and shoutcasters are present, there's suddenly, there's a, a, a familiar feeling of the things are building up, like things are getting tense. Look at this, look at Scump over here, taking the left flank, positioning himself in such a, suddenly people can get an idea of what's happening because the, the truth is that you're often shifting between so many screens also. And then you mentioned a game like Valorant where there's, agent abilities and why a certain agent might use an ability at a certain point which will complement a different agent and to the player to really the viewer who maybe has never seen the game before it's a lot of information to consume i find myself feeling that way when i was just getting into league of legends you know and as someone who plays a lot of video games has a, a good understanding of what pandemonium in a game can look like even i had a hard time understanding why certain things were being done. I rely heavily on commentators to help paint that picture. I love the way you say that, to help tell the story. I think it's critical. So I think you and I can agree that shoutcasters, commentators have a very important place in the hierarchy of the world of esports and that they fulfill a very important role for people to understand what's going on. The question then becomes, how are they, my question to you rather, do you feel that they get taken care of. What do I, have you maybe in my research? I've been describing this phenomena of uh, what what I think is the core issue in esports right now, which is what I call the neighbor's pie, the neighbor's pie. And what I mean by that is, you ever seen those cartoons where the, there's a freshly baked pie, and then there's like the scent yep. that's traveling. They pick up the mm -hmm. character. Okay, so I believe that's happening in all of esports. The pie is being baked by game publishers, think yeah. about Riot, Epic, etc. And then there's everybody else that's flocking, like just making their way to the pie because they want a piece. And I think that tournament organizers, streaming services, production companies, you name it, the esports organizations themselves, they all want a little piece. With the neighbor's pie problem, it makes me wonder how little of a piece have esports commentators been getting when... In reality, their presence is arguably 
monumental. There's an argument to be made that the player's arguably the most critical part of, of a team. But I think back to our discussion about storytelling, that commentators are, play an important role. Do you think that in your experience that you've been getting compensated for your experience, for your for what you bring to the table, whether that be at a collegiate level, local level, which, by the way, is where 90% of the best esports is happening, is at grassroots for the most part, because that's happening worldwide. But that, that's my question to you. Do you feel like shoutcasters are being fairly compensated, if at all, given the relevance of their work? Yeah, so I think when you talk about commentators and casters get compensated at the highest level, at yes, as long as you bring the goods, which is just expertise, it, I'm pretty sure, and I've heard a couple of commentators actually get paid pretty well at that level. But then it, th this draws back to the point of there not being a proper structure necessarily of how to become a commentator. Right? Like I said, I'm pretty much self-taught, much like most of the commentators. Right? There isn't like a school. And I don't think there could be a school for casting and commentary. Um, but definitely at the grassroots level, I know a ton of mishaps in terms of not receiving payment, uh, being charged for lesser than they deserve, which again, I brought it up a bit earlier, which was just not undermining yourself. Say in an environment like mine in India, say a very rookie esports commentator, if he went to a tournament organizer, which are usually the ones hosting tournaments in the country, right? If you went to, a, if he or she went to a tournament organizer as a rookie, has, has zero idea of how people get paid for this, but has the expertise, you can commentate. It's a, it's going to be a learning curve and could be, you could be taken advantage of, get it? And I've heard instances where they have been taken advantage of. Then again, on the flip side, Bring, bringing it back to my story, I had, there was one month, this, this was right before I started commentating for Web3 Gaming, games in Web3 Gaming for a LAN event, in fact, in Istanbul, hosted by W3E Gaming for the game EV.io, which I'm yeah. pretty sure you've heard of. Yeah, of yeah. course. EV.io. Yeah, I was remotely commentating for it. And what they paid me was probably eight times more what I got. Anywhere for three else. Hours yeah, per hour, on a per hour basis, yeah. On a per hour basis, it was eight times more than what I got here locally. Not to say that here in India, they do not pay those numbers. They do. But on the grassroots level, it's a different scenario and they're going to incentivize what they want wherever they can. Again, that's the part of it, right? Back to the conversation of the pie. They got to take do those cost cuts where they can because they're also operating at a relatively lower level. Get it? Right. Again, this was just one tournament organized I'd work with you locally, just as an example. But it's it's likely that their budget <clears throat> may not be for sure. At a level that is comparatively to what EV.io was was putting out. And right. I, I this makes me lead into the next question, which I think is going to be fun for some of our Web3 listeners out there. I believe that Web3 could do a lot to fix payouts. I think they could do a lot to help with transparency sure. in tournaments. And that's not just for participants of the competition, but also participants who are setting up the tournament, who are organizing, who are commentating. What do you think? Or My first question, do you think that EV.io having its Web3 presence is maybe what elevated 
there was a higher budget because there was a Web3 component to it. Like they knew there was going to be transparency involved. And what I mean by that is, do you, were you getting paid on chain? Was like, mm-hmm. was all of that being tracked on chain? Do you, what are, what are your feelings regarding like the difference in budget for something that is inherently with this technology, very transparent, i.e. using blockchain compared to something that's a grassroots effort where anyone can still participate, but perhaps it's just a more local level kind of thing or it's IRL even. I think that's a super valuable thing too. Yeah. I, I think if at the time, I'd say 100% EVDAO got everybody just hyped up just as ease of access. That was, I think it still is one of the highlights of that game, being able to just jump in and having that be a mechanic of being a Web3 game. But would is that the reason for a big budget? I think that I think a bull market could have been a bigger reason. True. That's my honest opinion as someone who's not only in gaming but also understands crypto and blockchain tech. So yeah, I'm gonna be honest and say that. But I will also say this: going into what everybody's talking about, the gaming bull run or whatever they want to call it, we're gonna see games that thoroughly deserve a budget for being a really fun game to play and yeah i'm i think i'm excited that's why i'm just jumping around into any game i get access to but yeah just going back to your question esports budgets for ev.io in specific definitely the bullrun had something to do with it i also will say this i'd heard rumblings about a pretty big tournament organizer being created specifically starting off with ev.io i don't know where it's ended up now, but I only heard rumblings. It was supposed to come out in the early parts of 2023. Still hasn't. And yeah, I heard a lot of good things that a lot of esports orgs wanted to jump in as well. So yeah, that that would be interesting yeah, if that actually developed. But I don't think the way they've moved so far, it's going to be the case. I think perhaps given the market conditions, yeah, it's exactly, unlikely. At least yeah. at this time, it might be unlikely. Uh, mm-hmm. I like what you how you brought up the the gaming bull because I yeah. catch that on my TL all the all time. The time. And we're here, so let's just talk about it for a moment. I, I still think, despite a bull market, like mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that a game is just inherently good. Any like just because the market conditions make sense, and I I believe that there's a high likelihood of some individuals just forming a game studio and raising funds while the the bull market is doing its thing and probably making their leave their exit and leaving other folks bag holding it makes you think about some of the people that came out as game studios in the last bull and how they continue to build up until this point all the way through the bear through funding being utilized through unforeseen circumstances trying to make your community happy as well, which I think is just a whole nother area of entitlement in terms of the participants. I think a lot of people who are in Web3 are insanely entitled. I buy one thing and therefore I need to get free shit for the rest of my life. But hey, more power to them. What do you reckon would be a indicator of success for someone in Web3 gaming, whether that be a studio, whether that be a opportunist, let's call them, someone who's trying to get a bit of a come up on on the bull market, which, hey, by the way, for our listeners out there, get your bread, man. I'm not criticizing (laughs) you. If you're going to be a trader, just be smart about it is all I'm saying. 
But Zada, what do you think is is an indicator of success for someone running into the gaming bull? What, whatever that's supposed to look like, what is the thing that sticks out to you? Like, ah, these people right here, they got it. They, they got the thing. They got the juice. They got the special X factor. What is that to you? I, it's a tricky one to answer because as we speak right now, we've got one of these studios doing incredibly well in my opinion, which is Parallel. I hope I can say that. Parallel. And I say incredibly well, not only because of the increased number of players who are proactively playing the game in its close beta stage, me being one of them. Disclosure, I do hold assets in this game as well. But overall, outside of Web3 Gaming, you've got all these trading card game players, traditional trading card game players coming into Parallel. And on the flip side, in Web3 Gaming, you've got all the participants of Web3 jumping onto the game. Get it? These normal timeline farming individuals are getting behind a trading card game, trying to comprehend it. Always good. More the gamers, the better, right? No, no matter uh, how they end up being there. And then, as a studio, they're operating much like a very well executed bunch of game devs. And when I say that, I mean, they're building an ecosystem. They've got another game in the pipeline. They've got their 3D assets all set and ready. So when you're looking at that, and if you look at that and say, okay, they're getting Web3 Gaming spot on. And then you've got a whole lot of people saying Gaming Bull. And imagine somebody, and we saw this in the last bull run as well with Pixelmon, where they tried to really have this win, promised a lot of things and everything went belly up. And then you had a scenario where, so this is going to, I think this will happen a lot. I hope it doesn't. I really don't mean for this to happen, but I think given the way the crypto ecosystem is, it just might happen to your point of just every Tom, Dick and Harry just trying to build a game studio. What happened to the Pixel Mom person, right? He raised a bunch of funds through his mint. He kept the money somewhere. He had somebody come in and take over and he got compensated even though his intent probably wasn't to deliver a game at all in the first place. Which is why I was smirking the whole time saying gaming book because I think we're going to see a lot of those stories unravel itself. So I think to answer your question pretty straightforward, success, I think Parallel will be have that first move's advantage and everything. And hopefully we see something really properly on-chain which I'm hearing a lot about come in and get success completely in a left field way you know what i really value about what you just said is that regarding the player base in parallel is exactly mm -hmm. right there's people who don't know anything about web3 who are playing the game there are people who don't know anything exactly. about games who are playing the game exactly. and that is a super important thing another area that i noticed it was dead drop so that's uh -huh. dr disrespect's yep. game all that stuff i remember i was in new york 2022 Mm -hmm. Yes, 2022, and they were having a, an event. I met Dr. Disrespect, by the way. Tall-ass oh, wow. motherfucker, bro. Cool guy, though. And while I'm in line, I'm listening to some of the, the comments. The game hadn't even been released yet. I don't even think Snapshot 1 was available yet. And everyone's like kind of all like excited because, oh, man, we might be able to see Dr. Disrespect. Cool, but I'm like, God, I can't wait for the game. But my case in point was 90% of the conversations that I heard had nothing, nothing to do with speculation had nothing mm -hmm. to do with is this going to be worthwhile had nothing to do with trading nfts or and it i was blown away 
for having been surrounded in just like completely immersed in Web3. And I think you, I think you this feeling like much of what you consume is probably in the world of Web3, some gaming stuff, all that good stuff. And to have been exposed now to a sub event, because the, the larger event was NFT NYC. So you expect to run into Web3 people everywhere you go. And I'm at this sub event specific to Dead Drop, and there's no commentary on that. There's no commentary whatsoever on anything that had to do with Web3. It was all pure excitement for the game. And I think that's uh, arguably what becomes more of an indicator for success than, oh my God, I can't wait until they release a token. Oh my God, I can't wait until they drop another round of NFTs or whatever, anything of that sort. Like Treeverse. Treeverse is another example mm -hmm. where, and I think a lot of games did this in the last cycle, which is let's just release a bunch of tokens. We'll sell, mm -hmm. we'll make mad money that way. And then we'll take those funds and we'll try and make a game, which may or may not be an ideal play. I use the example of Pixelmon. I think they walked out with 70 million, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. That's a, yeah. what, in terms of what a gaming budget could be, that's ridiculous. There are people that make amazing stuff with way less. I really value what you say about the particular, the particularities of the individuals who are getting involved and, and that being a good indicator of success is very important. Yeah. I will say this, however, with in the topic of dead drop, right? The onboarding process is probably another important part to it. Just don't sugarcoat it. Be real with everybody and just dropping. I, I think I, I would argue dead drops drop those 10,000 variants as they call them, those characters. That was probably one of the cleanest drops I've seen. And Dr. Disrespect, credit to him for doing what he did, the way he did it with the folks over at Stardust. I believe they're the yep. ones who aided in it. And yeah, just again, you can consider this a disclosure, but to give you a bit of context on the on what my variant is doing, I've, I'm heavily into Web3 and it's not left that website, the Stardust wallet. Mm -hmm. Get it? Yeah. So it, I'm, and I don't want to remove it. Because I know snapshots are going to come. Access is going to come. There's going to be a battle pass at some point. I want those things. Like, this can go up, down, and sideways. I'm all right. You're more interested yeah. in what that key is going to give you. Yeah, More exactly. than the value the of the game. key. Yeah. Is, so, the and, and yeah, this is, uh, this is what I mean. I also like what you say about just being straight up about what, what's, in, uh -huh. what's involved in the game. I think we saw that with a bit of an... I think we saw what the negative effects of withholding information can look like with creator league mm -hmm. and that may, maybe that's a, a brief segment that we can have what do you think about are you i assume you're familiar with with yeah. creator league and the fallout and everything that happened as a result right like yeah we, we saw these individuals withholding that information like you bryson in particular shout out to bryson mad love it was one of the first people that I, I saw my timeline kind of talking about it so i knew that there, there may have been some kind of web3 Componentry involved. Mm -hmm. But when I read through the site, I saw nothing that had to do. There was no notion of NFTs of Web3. From a clarity standpoint, I could I can get behind that. I can get behind just saying what to expect. Mm -hmm. However, to omit information, like people are gonna find, people are gonna look. We live yeah. we live in the internet, the era of the internet where all the information that you could possibly want can be found for the most part. And yeah. uh, we, we saw what the fallout was. People were just, we saw that one guy, the CV dog or whatever, I forget his handle. He just straight up pulled out. 
And what yeah. was crazy, what I think was a massive failure on the side of Creator League, was mm -hmm. that were they just taking anyone they can get? Because that gentleman was very voiceful, was incredibly opinionated against NFTs for a long time. So mm -hmm. in my eyes, it's like someone didn't do their homework regarding who, who should be part of the Creator League. But initially, I was, I was so excited for it. It seemed like such an ideal shift to what a realm of esports can look like. And maybe this is our next segue, but uh, community-owned esports. So mm -hmm. I talked earlier about the pie and what I think is a big struggle for the industry right now in that there's so many people trying to get a, a tiny piece of the pie and, and no one's eating as a result. Esports itself, in my opinion, has to have a new pie. There's an argument to be made that could be done via communities and how Creator League did it and how also we see with Nouns Esports, how we see with a Black Hand, shout out to Black Hand, by the way, who placed third in the Dark Apex Days. Legends group stage. Massive victory for Web3 Esports, just Sirsu, man, legend. Yeah. Him and, and Dylan, I think, is the other individual, both, both the co-founders. Cool guys. But we see individuals or we see instances like this where a community ran organization starting to have some relevance in the greater scene. They're competing against some of the biggest names in, in esports history, TSM, Optic, 100 Thieves, etc. I'm interested in your viewpoint. Do you think, do you feel that there is legs behind community owned esports? And if so, what do you think in terms of longevity? The reason I ask this is because they might pay some money to be a token holder, to have some governance mm -hmm. of, of the organization, but then what? Then, exactly. then where does the team make money? So I'm curious to hear your thoughts there. Yeah. So first off, just on the topic, Black Hand, shout out to them. APAC Esports represent a lot of my friends who are just going crazy on the timeline about it because it was such a big deal for uh, us as a region as well. So that's always a treat. And again, uh, okay, that's a bit of a segue, a bit of a tangent. So. Let's not go there. But yeah, to your question, right? I think there's, looking at community-owned esports teams, I would question like, okay, fine. How is this community being formed? Is it from an NFT drop? Because then they're going to have you know, a lot of expectations. Competitions, wins will only go so far if you're doing an NFT drop, right? And if it's a DAO, then I'd say, okay, but still, beyond the competition, beyond the wins, beyond the tournament prize pools, like where else are you looking to expand? At the end of the day, and maybe this is a bit off, to, off pocket, out of pocket, right? But I think when you talk about community owned in the sense of DAOs, I don't see too much of a difference between that and say a well-equipped board managing an esports team. And when I say a well-equipped board, people who can constantly ensure there's a flow of money into that brand or company. Get it? But the other aspect or concept of making it completely community-owned to a certain extent of bringing in revenue from the community, which I think Sentinels are dabbling with and struggling to ensure that comes through and a bit what Creator League wanted to do in some cases, right? which is basically have that raise, give them something that they can own and then giving those holders experiences and giving them uh, something of value that probably will, would have costed them, but it's not direct uh, monetary value. 
Make sense? So I think that's a part, that's something to be explored more and just building out a structure like that. For example, if Blackhand did that, if Blackhand, since they're already leading on-chain, and I know they're hosting on-chain tournaments as well, if they had, as part of their business, had a round where around or an NFT drop for that soulbound tokens even for that matter, giving their supporters, giving their fans access to experiences in a well-structured way. I don't see why investors wouldn't be appealed to come back and put their money into esports. And you're saying investors from the VC side of things or are you saying investors yeah. from the individual from VC? Either, either in my opinion, right? Because when you say individual, what are they appealed by? Either they need to have passion towards esports, right? Or it needs to make them money or retain a sizable amount of attention. Three things. Yeah. Fair? Yeah. So, yeah, Zat, yeah. Zata's coming with a take yeah. today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, see it for what it is a pretty big thing for me, okay. which, yeah, going back. And, and why? Because I spent a year foolishly trying to run an esports team without paying players. But I didn't take any money. So to give you a bit of context, if I may, which is after, while hosting those tournaments, right, what I tried to do was form an esports team where, where I'd recruit the players. I'd set times for them, basically acting as a GM, what a GM would do, right? Coordinating with other teams, setting up scrims. Took no money from this whatsoever. Made zero throughout that year, right? as I rightfully should, because no one's getting paid. Tournaments fielded them for free tournaments. If they got, if the, if any kind of money came through, it's between the players. I'm not even looking at it. But the whole intent for it was to show that I was able to build this structure across a year and somehow like leading up to the tail end of a year and thereafter, try and get some sort of backing, be it sponsorships, be it PCs, whatever it is. Of course, that doesn't work, folks. Don't try it. Players never stay together when there's unless there's a real bond between them or in my case there wasn't any money being earned by any of them and they were all in college so you can do the math on that so yeah that that whole year taught me a lot about how it operates because i was talking to a lot of these players who ended up going pro rightfully they asked why don't i get paid because they they need to get paid and the reason i bring that up is because the biggest topic in conversation in esports right now is that player salaries need to come down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But how do you quantify that? Because these players, they are who they are because of their skill. Sure. And any traditional sport, players get paid. Sure. They play, get paid handsomely. So yeah, it's a tricky place to be. But yeah, going back to the original question of how Okay, what was it? I'm sorry, uh, I lost track. Of, like, basically, do you see, yeah, yeah, did you see value in a community-owned community. like structure for an esports organization? Yeah. And yes, uh, but I think we need to be real with it. And I think even DAOs away from esports are facing this reality check, if I may. I uh, agree. Speak. Yeah, I used to say for a while that DAOs are like I used to question people and say, "Does it need to be a DAO, or do you want mm-hmm. a Facebook group?" Exactly. Pretty much. What are you raising for? Because if you guys just have a common interest in playing basketball, brother, I got news for you. Just set up a fucking WhatsApp and then you are on your way. You don't even organize tournaments wherever you want. But I want to go back to to something you said about getting paid, about like your experience. 
trying to set up a team and you noticed that they weren't that there wasn't money coming in that was one observation that i had there because i also ran an esports organization for a while and i ran oh, wow. this into similar challenges that's what quest has shaped shifted into many things over the nice. span of uh, the last three four years i'm still very proud of it i'm still pushing it that's a different topic so i, I know what you mean about gathering teams about like the longevity of a team, like people like them not really sticking together, not sticking around because there's not money coming in, trying to get sponsorships. There's so much that falls on the hands of a GM, as you put it, that is often out of your control. That you don't really have very much of a say in. And then what I thought was also a really great point is around player salaries. So mm -hmm. how did we get here? First of all, in 2018, VC started coming into a lot of esports organizations as well as like just a heightened amount of sponsorships. And we really saw that happening with the first round of 100 Thieves. And this is when like Drake and the co-owner or the part exactly. owner. You know what I'm talking about. I forget his name, Dan Gilbert or something like that. Mm -hmm. But the Cleveland Cavaliers owner came in and then they put up a check for 100 Thieves to have some part equity. And basically they would have a, a nice paycheck, some runway, really. We saw TSM get wrapped up with FTX. That was another 500 mil right there. We saw FaZe mm -hmm. go public. They were trading for a little bit. That was crazy, though. It Ten was a crazy contract, era. Yeah. It, yep. in, in, in the last four years, what we saw in esports and the amount of money coming in was insane. I, I think what we saw over overall was hyper growth. And the idea was that many esports organizations, I don't know that they were re, like objectively looking at their books of the money coming in versus the money going out and saying... We need to do something to address this. I, I think a lot of it was grow, get as big as you possibly can, sign the biggest players, make the best teams, and, and get competitive. I think that's what I would argue that was the ethos of every esports organization over the last four years, first and foremost, <laughs> which brought us to where we are today, where, hey, actually, these motherfuckers get paid a lot of money. And we don't really make a lot of money off of any of these people, per se, outside of out of them being competitive. And what is that going to give you outside of prestige, right? Or, or bragging rights. So the because you made the comparison to traditional sports and how they get paid. But the difference is that they I use the example of the NBA a lot. And mm -hmm. this could probably be attributed to many leagues around the world. But in the NBA, the league is incentivized to see the teams, the franchises, do well. As the Memphis Grizzlies, for example, I'm not a Grizzlies fan, I'm a Miami Heat fan, but mm -hmm. as the Grizzlies grow and John Morant becomes a more and more socially relevant player, jersey sales go up, which means media, media rights start to get more expensive or more valuable, rather, which means that there's more opportunities for player, vert, I should say player and fan camps. And that mm -hmm. all, all of a sudden, the growth of a particular franchise is what helps the IP, which I can't even call the IP owner because the NBA does not own the IP per se. The teams collectively do. They are incentivized to see them do well. This is a big issue that we have in, in esports, which is, and this is what I was talking about, the pie is Riot owns the pie. Epic owns exactly. the pie. Rockstar owns the pie. They don't need competitive gaming as much. Where these salaries came from is just is difficult to wrap heads around. And I think, again, a lot of this was due to 
the the closed structure that they had with franchising, particularly Riot, who led this with League of as Legends, with Valorant as well. Call of Duty also took it on. And yeah, Overwatch also took it on. And suddenly, it's costing $27 million just for you to get involved in a league. And mm-hmm. now you also got to get your payers played and coaches and equipment and basically it's just a spend it just becomes a crazy spend let's go back to where you and i were at we want to get involved in this we want to get a team we want to get competitive we decide maybe we want to make a a community-owned organization where that's how we start fundraising and and that's how we're going to start signing players it still falls back to the question of how does this team make money i'll give you an example 100 Thieves currently has four additional business businesses that are mm-hmm. operating under the house of 100 Thieves. That's their Juvie Energy Drink. Yep. That's their High Ground Keyboards. Project X, which is supposed to be like a game development studio. And then let's just say like they're, what they're probably known for the most, which is their lifestyle, apparel, et cetera. Apparel, yeah. If all of these businesses on their own make money, so mm-hmm. they're in the green for all of these, and then they just take the profits and dump it into esports. And esports is what's costing them money to operate, right? To have their salaries, to get players to travel to where they got to go and all that stuff. It, we're still at the same, we still have the same problem, which is this shit costs us money. Mm-hmm. Now, what I like about what in particular Black Hand has been doing is, and this is just like one small segment of where I think answers may lie is that they're doing mints for the moments that happen. They're moments in, not in a game particularly, but let's just say in this case, after ALGS, they will Mm -hmm. mint a kind of, were you there NFT? Why do I think that's valuable? As we continue to grow digitally and and more of our life gets involved on the computer and what we do online, I believe people will, much like how they kind of flaunt tickets today, saying, like, I was at that game. I was at that game where Larry Bird played against Magic Johnson and he dropped 33 points on his head, like, and here's the ticket to prove it. The way that exists in the IRL world, I believe will translate over to the, the digital scope. And yeah. I believe Black Hand already is, is getting ahead on that. The question still, be, still remains, though, does that become a large enough revenue source for them to continue operating in a sustainable manner? I still don't think so. I believe much of the future for esports lies in the team's ability, and I say team, really the org, and the organization's ability to monetize their teams. Meaning, fanship, viewership has continued to grow, and I think you've seen this too. In gaming, has has kept going up. Mm-hmm. Costs are also going up. Let's, let's be honest, right? And although the sentiment has been going down, people are wondering whether or not this is going to survive. I, I think that overall, the interest, the passion has never been higher than it is in today's age, which makes me think that a lot of these fans want to get closer to those creators, to those competitors, to the coaches. And perhaps that is an area worth monetizing. Will it take them away from their game? Yes, there's probably an argument to be made there because now I have to require them for four hours out of the week to do some PR stuff or whatever. But damn it, if, if there's no other models of revenue and, and your operation needs to survive, this might be 
at least something worth considering. So what are you thinking about that? I know I rambled there for a little bit, but I'm like, okay. what are you thinking early on in terms of help, like trying to monetize the team rather than mm -hmm. looking for sources elsewhere and then using all of that money to feed the beast? Because if it's just feeding the beast, where are we going anyway? Yeah. Two parts to what you said. First, on the topic of Black Hand, releasing moments as part of trying to raise a little bit of revenue through that. If anything, if I was behind a desk in the Black, Black Hand executive room, I'd say that's a bit, bit of pressure on us, right? That 10-year-old, that video of 10-year-old Michael Jordan playing basketball is valuable only because Michael Jordan became Michael Jordan. True. If, if the taxter was playing basketball, no one cared. I would care. I would mint that. I, I don't know. I know. You get what I'm saying? So <laughs> yes. it's in a sense that if some, if one person picks that up, he can, for him, in terms of value is passion, close to his heart. And in terms of continued revenue in the sense of being in Web3, you could say like royalties on top of that. If, so, if someone sells that later on, right? Why would they sell? If they'd sell it, would, would they, it would fetch a higher price or there's a royalty side to it where the player in that particular moments or the team in that particular moments was so good and built such a good brand that you've got big media houses wanting that footage. Get it? So that's why I think about selling moments because I know a streaming platform that's selling clips of any other streamer that jumps on these days. So yeah, that's, anyway, that's another topic. Now to the topic of what was the second part? I'm sorry, I keep blank. Of, uh, of where else they can monetize the team like the business of esports rather than depending on businesses elsewhere, i.e. sponsorship, investment, it win, even winning competition, okay. media yeah, rights, another one. one. Yep. And uh, media duties. So instantly when you said that, I thought about Formula One because the drivers, they're supposed to be racing on over a weekend. Like they got free practice, qualifying and the race. In between, they're running up and down media duties. That's for the most part, that's what they have to do because that's a big chunk of money coming through. And I think players need to get more acquainted with these things because, and then there's another case to be made is, do we have enough viewership retention for these big publishers to sell media rights to a big network? Okay. Again, you can be on either side of that uh, question. Either way, again, to, to your point, which you brought up, right? Epic, all of them, I think they do need to give part of the pie. And I think they've realized, going back to one of the franchises you mentioned, the BCD, of course, they're not giving a sizable chunk yet to the teams, but they did allow the teams to join them, partner with them in without, having to pay, without having to pay in mm -hmm. the very beginning. Okay, So that was a big relief to start off. But I think they still can really help them grow and facilitate a good environment. But of course, they'll, it'll hit their balance sheets as well. And exactly. on the business angle, it's never going to make sense for them. It's a loss. It's it's actually an yeah. ongoing loss even for the publisher. And, and this is what I was trying to get at earlier when, when we started the talk, which is the publisher does not need competitive gaming to exist in any way, shape, and form in order for them to sell games or to sell in-game assets. Esports... Okay, go ahead. But I'll finish this up. Esports uh -huh. largely is the competitive passion of a small subset of gamers that viewers are interested in watching, maybe to enhance their game, get an example of what ideal play looks like, cool. But 90 to 95% of their money that Riot makes, Epic makes, 
does not come from people who are watching esports or even less competing in esports. They're coming from the regular casual player who just happened to a skin and bought it. Not because their favorite player, maybe because their favorite streamer was using it at best. But from the esports side, I there's an argument to be made. And I, I was actually just reading this uh, a really thoughtful piece. It's a two-part essay, about 5,000 words in each part. So it's a bit of a long read. I spent like almost two hours reading it. But there was a gentleman who used to work at Riot who did orchestrate a lot of these esports, not venues, but the esports events. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about it. He was talking about how a lot, a lot of internal conversations were largely around is this a marketing cost? Is running an esports organization, or rather having an esports tournament happening by, via us, the publisher, is it a marketing cost? What are we gaining out of it? The publishers themselves are asking that question. And mm-hmm. again, I think it's because even if they're getting their game on a worldwide view where they're getting 2 million viewers concurrently like Fortnite did, what the, the question in my head is, what does that convert to? And would it convert as high as Mr. Beast making a video of his world in Fortnite and then saying, hey, click here if you want to download this link for $4.99? Because mm-hmm. I, I believe that's a whole other argument that can be made is yeah. that creators are probably mm-hmm. like substantial. They will go further. The dollar will go further for less effort because it's just one person as opposed to let's organize a, an event for 20 different teams. There's definitely a case to be made, but I wouldn't be active and a good participant in the industry if I didn't say that I think it is a marketing cost and I think publishers do need it. I think having that environment of competition does up any game they produce. It's a pretty big part of it. But yeah, there's definitely a case to be made. That Every time I think about that one year I spent like building that esports team, with, which wasn't really an esports team, I would think real long and hard about all of the business side to the game from the game publisher side from the esports orgs and everything and as a game publisher when you're racking up revenue from all these different avenues be it the game itself the sales of the game the in-game items any kind of other promotions along the way promotional content within the game i think about how that's a good enough reason for them to say no to esports and then you have the creator account economy leaning in as well and saying publishers we'll work with you we'll punch up these bunch of creators and do 5v5s right that's been one of the biggest selling points in my country where any kind of esports events even before the competitors from the professional esports organizations get onto stage we have 10 creators go up against each other that's what i mean yeah so when you look at it from that perspective what do you really start thinking Right. Riot really needs to, so not, not only Riot, but all these game publishers really needs to, really need a big enough reason. And I think competition is all the reason we can give them that pristine competition, the highest of the highest tiers of competition. And when I say that, those crazy moves being made in your video game, which you may not see your creators do. Yeah. But that's the only thing we can offer in esports from that perspective. Yeah. For it to make sense. To your point, though, I will say, I, I guess what I'm trying to say in my initial, in what I was saying initially uh-huh. is from a business perspective, I don't think I, that a, a publisher looks at their balance sheet and says, okay, like this is a cost that we need, we absolutely need to eat. No, I think it's more so they feel like a responsibility. They feel culturally that they owe it to their players, the competitors, 
that hey like yeah we, we should probably have some kind of competitive presence like that that's an ideal thing from a cultural standpoint and that's why they go through it or again that's my theory on why they go through it but that's the only reason like i mentioned like the only reason could be the competitiveness aspect to it which is like getting to see for all the moments that we got us saw in esports so far be it in cs be it in valgen there's a lot it, it's why we do what we do and we like uh, someone in a publisher position will actually be convinced to do it otherwise marketing wise as well like you mentioned that mr beast map in fortnite charge them $500 to even jump in it's what you said i said 5 bucks yeah. but okay my 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 go ahead of myself but yeah 5 bucks to jump into that map would be a better marketing spend for them as a business without it yeah so that makes that brings me to this next point and i think this is even this is still a hard question esports today as we've seen it so far has it been value extractive or has it been serving value what well, how how do you see the last 4 to 5 years for for participants from the esports organization the business owner the competitors the coaches etc have they been do they add value to the esports industry or are they extracting from it what do you think given what happened with phase being the only org to go through what they did and having been the pinnacle in my opinion i'd say everybody brings value and there is an argument to be made what type of business owner is behind the organization because you look at 100 thieves despite the esports winter as they call it they're doing pretty good doing great so they got more relevance in the world than a lot exactly like their name means something i think yeah and even apart from that brand deals they're getting top tier brands their ability to think of energy drinks to think of high ground to think of okay let's just go and do the project x like a brand new video game they're coming out with and i think the point i'm getting to is i think there's a case to be made that we need people from within the industry to get behind these organizations and get hands on again will that be the differentiator while raising another round from a week and ensuring the organizations running i don't know but from as a spectator it looks like 100 thieves card right the combination of someone in the industry existing getting behind it in in the case of Nate Shot and of course the executives have done quite a bit as well the rest of it without uh, the coaches they bring value you can see that in the competitive environment you don't have the same team winning like and again different coaches keep moving around and of course who else costs definitely bring value as i've justified players without a doubt without them i think esports would be very st- even if you put creators in there yes it would be great but i think players bring a lot of value so then here's cuz cuz you mentioned about how spectators are, are really people can get behind what 100 things is doing or, or maybe adopt similar principles i'm curious if you were to invest in esports and invest can mean a lot of things it can mean your time it could mean mm-hmm. your actual money what do you think is the first thing you do on the steps towards making this a sustainable business what is zata doing for that esports organization for any esports organization what whether it be first? your own whether it be your favorite okay. whether it be your enemies i don't know I, you probably don't have enemies cuz you're such a nice person but 
my like my case in point is if you were to add value to esports through an investment whether it be your time money or or something else what's the first thing you're doing i think adopting the same ways of thinking of ourselves as an organization the way 100 thieves did which is they're an esports team for a certain number of people already they're a bigger brand right and you see the type of content they're rolling out with their creators they're not thinking okay gaming content okay lifestyle content no there's they have a podcast for ev- for different types of people in my opinion you've got nature getting behind the mic ceo gamer doing it business so i think a lot of us who are business savvy if you may would want to watch that yeah. and people curious about the business of esports and gaming as well will want to watch that right I wouldn't be surprised if Riot themselves watched that podcast in specific because he's talking about it, talking about what he does, what he's done, and a bunch of other things. Then there's a bunch of female creators getting behind the mic as well. And then they have a normal podcast session with three people in it. So what I'm trying to say is they're not only going quick, but they're going depth as well with whatever they're doing, with their content. And content being such a huge part of it. So having that kind of mindset to be able to flip the switch and say, let's not limit ourselves to gaming and esports only. Let's expand and see what we can get beyond is like pretty big thing to do. And I don't think apart from hundreds of these other teams that fairly doing it, they want to for the sake of a bit of money coming through, but to organically, authentically do it. I think it's a totally different story. Very hard to achieve. I agree. I, I actually love what you mentioned about uh, the individual who's business savvy, who's in games, who's who wants to know how esports work. Yeah, their podcast is actually where I've gotten so much insight on what it must be like to be one of the, one of the if not the top esports organization worldwide right now. And they talked about the future of esports, their current challenges. They brought one of their financial guys on talking about what like some of the struggles have been earlier. It's just it was so insightful. I really I resonate deeply with what you say cuz it's very on the mark. So it sounds like Zata, yeah. if he had the reins, he's he's looking for what's out there. You want to yeah. sp- spread the horizons, see what sticks, and then go deep on what sticks. Is that accurate? Yeah, but I do have a bit of Achilles heel in wanting to do too many things at once. That's probably true for a lot of people. And hey, man, that's just what happens when you're a creative person. Yeah. You see a lot totally. of the world and you want to be there. Do not think of it as a, a detraction. Think about how you might make it a gift because it is a gift. So how to celebrate that gift would be worthwhile. Zada, I have held you hostage for a long time and we are arriving at the part of the show where I put the mic in the hands of my guests and I give them the opportunity to effectively roll out the red carpet and share their piece. If you have a message that you want to send to your audience, you have some love, some advice, some insights that you want to share, the mic is 100% yours. All right. I think in the topic of gaming and esports and in the interest of our ecosystem as a whole, I'd say if you feel like giving up, you probably are in the wrong part of a good industry, like in the right industry. And I think you should find the right place within this industry because in my honest opinion, and I say this a lot on the Twitter timeline or the X timeline, which is this is the decade of gaming. I do see esports thriving at the tail end of this decade. 
I don't, I think we're having a rough time. Yeah, but I do see it thriving eventually and going back to the days where we saw unimaginable amounts of money coming in, but overall just gaming, game developers, the amount of games being made, the way gamers are flocking to some of these games, Fortnite pushing out user-generated content, all of it, it and with G-Gaming, let's not forget it, all of it, it's a beautiful story being weaved in front of our eyes, and I really think it's going to be a beautiful decade for gaming, which is why I like don't want to give up. I still want to go do my college sports thing, and maybe I will, but I, I just don't want to give up on gaming. Yeah, that's my piece. It's Stick a to it. Stick in what you believe in. Gaming is going to reach its golden era. And if it yeah. was led by anybody, I would definitely follow you into the fire, my friend. Zada, I have loved this episode with you. Thank you so much for coming around. Ladies and gentlemen, that has been our episode for today. Again, if you want to catch everything, it'll be on all major streaming platforms. The video will also be on YouTube. Be sure to check that out. Be sure to w visit our website at quest.xyz, as well as the research going on. You can find that at 3rdeye.typedream.app. I'm going to leave all the links and all the good stuff in the description, as well as all of the social profiles of my good man Zata over here, who again is an individual certainly worth following. A lot of wonderful, brilliant insights on the TL, as well as just an amazing personality, kind person, good friend. Zata, yeah. appreciate you tremendously, yeah, man. It's been a good one. Likewise, Quest. Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully brought enough value to the podcast. And who knows, maybe the next time we're talking, we're both running esports organizations at some capacity. I would love that. Hey, yeah. we'll, we'll run it against each other on the tournament and yeah, then we'll run it yeah. back. Yeah. We'll run it back on, on the podcast, exactly. huh? Hell yeah, yep. I love it. All right, man. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Be sure to follow all the pages and we will catch you on the flip side. Peace.